Welcome back to the Live from AC Second Feed. This is our last autobiography podcast. This was recorded in March of 2015 with Barrett Fisher, Bethel uh, Associate Dean for Arts and Humanities. Um, Barrett was a former CWC professor, so I was a TA when he uh, when he taught the course. He taught in the English department. Um, Barrett is uh, is the associate dean over, um, like I said, over arts and humanities. So that that includes the history department. So he's uh, he's our dean um, uh, among the Bethel administration. Uh, we had a really really great conversation. Um, Barrett's someone I was always interested in. His lectures always contained a lot of kind of personal stories. So I was it was fun to dig in um, and learn a little bit more about him and learn about his transition from being a professor of English to being an administrator uh, and sort of how he thought about that. So as I said, this this interview will wrap up our summer autobiography look back series. Um, we're going to be dropping new feeds, new pods into the feed, uh, hopefully very soon. I know I've talked with, um, with some of the uh, regular cast of characters and they're excited to get back on the mics, especially you'll be hearing from Chris Moore, Amy Poppinga, Chris Gerritz, uh, Sarah Shady, uh, and lots and lots of other folks, uh, the EST group. Um, so I hope that you, uh, I hope that you enjoy this interview and I hope that you stay on the, uh, stay on the feed cause we're going to be dropping lots of great content in the weeks to come. Welcome to the Autobiography Podcast. My name is Sam Mulberry. Uh, my guest today is Barrett Fisher, uh, formerly of the English Department here at Bethel, uh, now the Associate Dean for Arts and Humanities. Uh, and this was really a, a fun conversation. Uh, Barrett is someone who was a, an instructor here um, while I was a student. I didn't have him for class, but I did uh, TA for CWC while he was teaching that. So we uh, we start there but go on kind of a, a long journey talking about um, books and film and life. And uh, this is just really a, a really fun episode to, uh, to record. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, here is Barrett Fisher. My guest today is uh, Barrett Fisher, um, formerly of the English department here at Bethel. Is, it, am I saying, is that correct to say you're formerly of the English department or you're still of the English department? <laughs> that, yeah, I think officially I'm formerly of the okay. English department, yes. And uh, just be, I'll let you tell me what your title is because I'll get it wrong otherwise. Associate Dean of Arts and Humanities. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, we're here to kind of talk about intellectual autobiography. Um, I, I guess I'll start with um, saying some things that I remember about you because I didn't have you in class or uh, when I was a student. I didn't have you for class, um, but I was a TA for mm-hmm. one of the years you taught CWC, and I have some. Um, I have memories of two specific lectures you okay. gave that um, that were really great. So these are these are these are compliments. So let <laughs> me you. let me say you probably remember them better than I do. <laughs> I maybe um, uh, the first was I remember you lecturing on Augustine, which is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's always been a special lecture to me as I think about Mm. that course um, because I feel like people come at it from different disciplinary perspectives and personal perspectives. Mm. Um, And it's it's a lecture over the last 10 years I've been – uh, had the uh, privilege to give in CWC, mm-hmm. but but yours is one that I always remembered. But I remembered it for a very weird fact, which is I don't remember the context of this, but in giving the lecture, you told the story of, that involved eating like a pound bag of M and M's or something when you were in graduate school. So <laughs> yes. that's my first impression. I do of remember you. The doing the, doing that. I have no idea how I linked it to Augustine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if it had to do with like maybe the will, nature of will, sin, uh, or, yeah. will versus emotions, or something yes, like that. Yes. Yeah. And then the, yeah. and then the other lecture, which I've talked with you about before, is. Um, you gave a lecture on the modern world and, mm-hmm. and did the whole lecture sort of through the lens of Joseph Conrad's Heart mm-hmm. of Darkness, mm-hmm. 
which was for me one of the first times that I sort of got what an English professor could bring to a course like mm-hmm. CWC, and, and it was it was really. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I've seen hundreds of CWC lectures in my life, and that's a probably a top ten lecture for mm. me, just because it was, um, it was so unique and so specific to the discipline of the person giving it. Mm. So, yeah, thanks. That's yeah. good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I still have dreams that someday we'll we'll move CWC back into the nineteenth and early twentieth <laughs> century, so we can revisit some of those things. It's also nice to know that you've actually influenced students in a way you intended to. That's right. <laughs> Well, I, I, I will say I did I did uh, that summer go and read Heart of Darkness. Because, well, there you go. Uh, yeah. Which is, I guess, is probably the big goal of that lecture. Yeah, that, that that's yeah that's yeah that as opposed to eating a pound of M and M's at one time. That's right. Yes, I, <laughs> you're right. I'd say I've probably that. done that too. But uh, I was yeah. Um, so uh, you know maybe we'll sort of s- kind of start at the beginning. Where mm-hmm. where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up on the East Coast uh, in Connecticut. Okay. Yeah, and spent most of my life. Uh, in that part of the country until I finished graduate school. So okay. I grew up in Connecticut, went to undergraduate in Maine, Bowdoin okay. College, and did my graduate work at Cornell University in New York. Okay. So, you know, okay. East Coast product. All right. So when yeah. you think of yourself as a, as a, a I, as a young person, I, my, my son is nine, so I always ask people questions in sort of related to the ages of my children. Like, mm-hmm. if you think about yourself as a nine-year-old, if we met nine-year-old Baird Fisher, what, uh, what was he like? Well, let me think. When I was nine, I had not yet really discovered sports. Um, wasn't really a very athletic kid. Um, it really was my younger brother got into playing sports and I, I got into sports. So I would say at nine, I was pretty, um, pretty bookish. Mm-hmm. I loved to read. I remember, I might have been a little older than this when this happened. I remember one summer we were supposed to, you know, read a bunch of books and keep track of them. And I was disappointed at the end of the summer. I'd only read 40. I was like, I, I failed. <laughs> Um, I loved school, uh-huh. um, but I, uh, I wasn't a popular kid. Okay. Um, I got teased a bit, especially on the bus. They always made fun of my name, um, either Barrett or Fisher. Um, where some of the kids used to, used to recite the nursery rhyme, fishy, fishy in the brook, daddy catch him with a hook, mama fry him in the pan, baby eat him like a man. <laughs> I find something really distasteful about that. Anyway, um, but I love going to school. School, school was great. So I would say I was, I've always been oriented to, um, to the academic life for, for whatever reason. So reading was probably my big passion at that point. Not that I was reading anything particularly challenging. Sure. I, I was, I read a lot of Hardy Boys and, Sure. Stuff like that. But it's, yeah. but I think it, you know, at that age, it's just, that's sort of how I feel about my, both of my kids is like, just read. Like, I, 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 I yeah. almost don't care what you're reading just as long yeah. as you, you love the act of doing it. Yeah. Cause I think some of that stuff will come around. Yeah. And I have no idea this has anything to do with my intellectual autobiography at all. But, um, I, I also at the time, my brother, father, and I were in a, um, a group called, <laughs> politically incorrect group called Indian Guides. Which I believe still exists. I went on the on the web and looked looked it up. It's sort of a father, and it is a father son thing. I think you don't think there are any girls. And we named ourselves for various uh, Indian tribes. We were the Abnakis, and we took Indian names. And I don't know what we did. I think we did crafty stuff. Okay, but, was it yeah. like camping? In yeah, the, 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 every year we went up to Camp High Rock. Okay, yeah, in Massachusetts. Okay. So, yeah. do you remember the first the first thing or? things that you read that sort of really kind of lit you up and, and excited you? Because there's one thing to be reading a lot, and there's other things, sort of like the, the first things that, that kind of made you um, get excited about about reading or about ideas. Or Yeah, that's a, 
That's a really good question, Sam. And I'm trying to. The funny thing is, I can't remember anything at a really early age that did that for me. Um, I can remember more when I was in my in my early teens. Um, I can kind of think of three books that don't in any way go together. Um, we were we had a uh, family. Plot. So I call it a plot of land. That sounds. Weird. <laughs> we had like we had a little bit of land near a lake that we would park a camper on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would go to the beach every day, and there was a guy on the beach who was a doctor, and he said to my mom, he gave my mom this book and said, this is a really great book. I think you really like it. My mom gave it to me. It was Michael Crichton's first novel, hmm. of all things. And I'm hmm. no, no big Michael Crichton fan, but there was something about, I just think, the, the power of, of plot in that book. And then somewhere around the same time, a few years later, I ran across, for whatever reason, um, the autobiography of Eddie Rickenbacker. Hmm. Um, I got really fascinated with that. But the book that, that really lit me up, the book that sort of turned my head around, uh, not surprisingly, was Heart of Darkness. Hmm. I read Heart of Darkness in ninth grade. And I don't know what it is about Conrad's style, Conrad's view of the world, what it is about his writing, but I was instantly um, captivated. Right. Yeah. That actually, there, there's a, uh, a question, and we have, we were in a meeting earlier today, and I said you started to bring up topics I wanted mm-hmm. to talk with you about. Um, and, and one of the things that I'm interested in is somebody who's a sort of a lover of books and a lover of literature. I'm presuming you're yeah. those things, right? <laughs> um, it's sort of like what are the a- what are the ages or what are the what are the right ages to read certain books, and are there are there sort of? Uh, and I realize it's, it's going to depend on the person and things like that, yeah. but I. As I look at my childhood, I'm always struck by the fact that I had this. I had a great education. I went to a Catholic schools my whole life, and it was really great. But one of my regrets is that I feel like people weren't putting the right books in front mm-hmm. of me. So I, I didn't really love reading until pretty late in high school or, or in really in college is when I really fell in love and I felt like I was playing catch up yeah, every summer. Yeah. Um, but but I'm sort of curious about like what are books at a young age that, 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 that have that potential. But then also, um, another thing that I've been experiencing is I'm on a big, um, I I, actually, it's sort of like I was in college where I'm going back and reading things that I, like I, I've never read Moby Dick. So Mm, I started mm -hmm. that this past week and I I realized this is a very late to the party comment, but it's great. (laughs) Like (laughs) I, I, I mean, I knew it was, everybody says it's great, but I started reading it thinking, I'm sure it's going to be fine. I am so thrilled every time I get a chance to pick that back up and read it. But I also think if I had started to read this at 21, I would it would have been fine. But at 37, I am so excited about this text. Yeah. Well, I think okay. First of all, um, my wife and I homeschooled our kids, and I have been told I've been trying to think of which books in particular, and I cannot coming up with them right now. But I've been told by my son, who is a pretty precocious reader, um, that I gave him things to read too soon, hmm. you know that, uh, and I I don't remember now what they were, but I can imagine. And I suppose part of the reason I did was because I went to a school where we had, well, as I've already indicated, a pretty challenging reading. You know, reading uh, Heart of Darkness in ninth grade. I read my first Dickens in eighth or ninth grade. Mm-hmm. But I think the answer is, uh, I think about C.S. Lewis's uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, and Lewis talks about his father's vast library. Mm-hmm. And he said his father never read a book he didn't own and never owned a book he didn't read. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how there were books in that library that were suitable for children and some books that weren't suitable for children. But I think our 
I, 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 don't, I think this is to a certain extent imposed on us by publishers, this idea that this is a young adult novel. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a novel for children before the age of 10. This, I, I mean, they're not bad guidelines, but I tend to think that the only way to find out what's appropriate is to try stuff out. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit like food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some kids might want to eat Brussels sprouts when they're 10. You know, I, I was older than that before I, Brussels sprouts appealed to me. Right, right. And also, I think the other thing too, Sam, is that People respond to different things at different ages. So, you know, even though I can look back and say, my gosh, what in the world did I get out of Heart of Darkness at the age of 14? You know, well, maybe I got something, uh, an experience of, of, the, of the work, even if I obviously couldn't see everything that was going on there. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it really depends on what you respond to as a reader. You know, sure. if, you, if you respond more to visual things uh, and you have a great visual imagination, you may love what you're reading, even if you don't really fully get it. Right. I, can remember, I can remember reading, um, we always had a summer book assigned at my high school. And I can remember one summer reading Light in August by Faulkner and getting all through the book and somebody and somewhere reading somebody saying something about the castration scene. And I remember thinking there was a castration scene. I mean, I had, I, I, I mean, I read every word in that right, book, right. but I, but if you had said to me, what do you think about light in August? I would have said that was a great book, yeah. but I didn't, but I didn't get a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that. I mean, speaking of Falk, that reminds me of, of reading *The Sound and the Fury*. Mm-hmm. Probably, and, and I did. I read it on my own, not in the context of a class. Yeah. And feeling like I, I'm, I'm struggling with what. But I, but I, I remember telling people, but it's great. It's, right. Yeah. Right, like right. I, I can yeah. acknowledge that, and I can see it, and I'm ex- again, I'm excited to turn the pages and to read it. But I'm not. If you asked me what this chapter was about, I would be reaching for things. But see, that's such an important observation because. Um, one of the things I find sometimes frustrating with students is that if they don't get something, um, they assume that there's something wrong with the work, mm-hmm. you know, whether or, or, or and, and sometimes they're right, but I think, but I think, you know, the attitude towards something which is difficult to read, but if people have been reading it for 200 years, must, must be, I think, uh, oh, I guess I'm not getting something. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Johnson says something about you should be ignorant of another person's understanding before you presume to understand their ignorance. Uh, hmm. And I think that's a good a good principle. Um, so. What about rereading then? I mean, that no. was another thing we talked about this morning. So, I mean, I presume when you were in uh, <laughs> when you were thirteen, it's not the last time you read Heart of Darkness. No. Well, yeah, I, I made a pompous statement this morning that uh, the, the only thing worth reading is are things which are worth rereading, which is really a stupid thing to say, but it sounds profound. <laughs> um, but no, I, I I think when I think about some of the books that are in my in my top ten, most of them. I probably have read four or five times. Many of them I read probably on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, re- I think rereading is similar to, um, I don't actually rewatch movies as much as some people do, but it is kind of similar to rewatching a movie because once you get past the initial plot, and maybe once you get past the initial interpretation, the the pleasure you, you take in it is um, either seeing different things or just, I don't know, it's a lot like, um, gee, have you ever eaten a hamburger? Oh yeah. Do you think you'll ever eat a hamburger again? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, and I think when people think that reading is just about information or just about plot, um, I think that there, it's almost like reducing eating to nutrition. Right. That's right. yeah. And, 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 and I think there's some books that particularly lend themselves to that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, Emma, for example, is a great example uh, by Jane Austen because, you know, there's a there's the first time through something you come to a number of realizations at the same time as the character does. So then then the second time you read it, you read it with a much greater sense of of irony. And so in a sense, rather than saying, oh, it's ruined, it's actually enriched. Right. Well, I also feel like, like, and and maybe this is the types of the types of novels that I like or types of literature that I like, but they often also don't require you to reread the whole text. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I like most of the books I really love. If you said, what's it about? I'd say, well, this guy's kind of talking about this or they're having a conversation. I mean, there, there are books that are driven by moments. Like I, I, I like the, um, the, the short stories, uh, the longer short stories of JD Salinger, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. which if you think about something like Seymour, like it's not about any, I mean, no, it's about lots of things, right, but there's right. no plot to it. Right. But there are, there are six or seven amazing moments in that book. So very often I will, I keep those by my bed and, Sometimes if I can't sleep, I will pick it up and I, I know where every great moment is that I love and I will go find that and, and just read that moment. And that's what I, and that sort of charges me to think about other ideas around it or connect it to things outside of the book. I, I also think another thing that indicates is um, I think we tend to read and reread for style. Mm -hmm. um, Robert Alter defines style somewhere as like a, a, I'll paraphrase it, but something along the lines of a fine excess of meaning. In other words, um, it's prose, but it's not utilitarian. And so I think, you know, when I, when I think about books that I read or reread, it's often, it's for those, those particular passages mm -hmm. um, that you just dwell on where there are, what they say is not quite as important as how they say it. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably what drew me to Conrad. Um, not to harp on that, but, but when I think about students responding negatively to Conrad, what they often respond to is is the denseness of the of, of the words, and which I think is a kind of um, um, a mimetic, especially in hard darkness, has a kind of mimetic quality. Just as you're trying to cut through the jungle, uh, or Kurtz is trying to cut through the jungle, so you as a reader are cutting through these words. But the but that's what carries carries the meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the act of getting through the language or immersing yourself in the language, which is part of the meaning of the of the of the of the. So do you, do you do you have particular like specific? You talk about top ten books, but but particular moments in books you like to like that that are sort of highlights you like to turn to to say, oh, I love to read this passage or this. Oh yeah, or like, uh, things that come to mind as you're expressing that idea. Even well, you know, I mean, actually, one one of my favorite books is. Um, uh, Frederick Wigner's Godric, and I, and I, and I just I just oh I turn the opening pass the opening sentence over in my mind. Five friends had I, and two were snakes. Hmm. It's just it's just a great it's just a great opening. Um, yeah, you know the the moment in in Heart of Darkness when um, uh, Marlowe confronts uh, what's happened with Kurtz and talks about how he he'd kicked himself loose of the earth, mm -hmm. uh, or Lord Jim. Um, one of my favorite novels. In fact, it's a novel I've used at various times to interpret my own life, if that makes sense. But there's a moment where, um, if you haven't read Laura Jim, um, <laughs> the one sentence in a uh, summary of Laura Jim is a man jumps off a ship and feels bad. But there, there's, there's a moment where, uh, Jim is thinking about what he's done and he's, he pauses and he says, what a chance missed. And I, I've used that. I mean, phrases like that that come to my mind when I'm talking to somebody or thinking about a situation that – so that, that those Absolutely. are the kind of yeah. – yeah, yeah. Conversely, do you have things that you're um, 
I don't want to say you're afraid to reread because the experience was mm. was a powerful experience or an important experience or at least an important memory, and you're afraid if you reread that either you will kill that memory or you will find that oh that actually didn't stack up to what I thought. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll give as you're thinking, I'll give you an example. I and I'm sure this is actually great because I, I remember one of the early. This isn't that early. I was a senior in high school. I remember reading. We read a tale of two cities in. Um, and I remember sitting in a room. I was in the library at my high school, and one of my best friends was at a different table. And we were both – we made a pact as a class that we weren't – no one was going to read ahead, and we were going to read just certain chapters each day. So I knew we were reading the same thing, and we kept – it was when Sidney Carton is um, – I think I think he's using sort of card playing as a metaphor, and he's kind of laying out, here's the things that I know. And we kept looking up at each other as we were reading, <laughs> thinking, I, I can't believe what, like how great this is. And I, I honestly, I've never reread – Tale of Two Cities because I have such a great memory of reading it. I'm my fear would be like, yeah, it's fine, it's great, but but it's not like it will never be what it was that one time, which is probably not a good reason not to, not a good yeah. Well, I that that's a very good question, and I I'm not sure that I could say there are things I have stayed away from rereading, but there I definitely had an experience of rereading something, and I was completely disappointed. Um, hmm. When I was in eighth grade, I think it was yeah, I think it was eighth grade. We did a whole semester on um, epics, and so you know we started with the um, we did the Iliad, and then we did Song of Roland, and um, we did we did, we did a whole uh, Gawain and the Green Knight, and some of them were classic epics, some of them were more stories set in that time period. So there's one about the Norman invasion called The Golden Warrior, hmm. and I just remember being completely captivated by that book. And I, at the time we were homeschooling the kids, I decided it was a book I was going to read out loud to them in the evening. And I, I, I couldn't figure out for the life of me what had so impressed me about it. Hmm. I was just, I, and I, I was just disappointed. The fact that we didn't even finish it, I, I was just disappointed. I thought this is, this is not a very good book, hmm. <laughs> book at all. Hmm. Yeah, but I haven't stayed away from. Uh, that's the only time I've had that experience of, of, okay. of disillusionment. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just need to point out now. It sounds like you went to a great school. Like, I, I went to a college. I've, I've, I've been trying to avoid saying prep school. It was it was okay. it was a college preparatory school. Okay. And there is actually a story there because uh, I'm not from a, a preppy family. Neither of my parents went to college, um, but I was a good student. And the school system I was in, the high school was so poor that I don't know what the equivalent of accreditation for high schools is, but there is. And there was talk that the school was so bad that. It wasn't going to be accredited and forget being able to go to college from a school like that. Mm -hmm. So my parents sent me off. The school I went to was 7 through 12, but they sent me off there at 8th grade. Um, it was formerly a boarding school, but that was long in the past. But it's an old school. It was founded in 1660. Okay. At the time I went, it was called Hopkins Grammar School, which always sounds a little silly when you're 11th grade. Right, right, right. Or, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I got, a, I got a great education. In fact, in many ways, I think that my – uh, prep school education was my most significant intellectual experience until grad school. Okay. Um, yeah. So we've talked a lot about, about a lot about literature and reading, but if we think about your your high school experience, I mean, what were what were other components to that? Oh, I, um, high school was really the only time in my life, and I'm not saying this to make myself sound pathetic, okay? Mm -hmm. um, but it really was the only time in my life when I had a, a really um, close circle of male friends. Okay. I mean, I've had other circles of friends since then, but it was a it was a group. And you know, if we'd been in a public school, I think we would have been 
pushed up against the wall and and and, and probably hit every day of our lives. But since it was a prep school. Uh, and there were there were still levels of geekiness at prep schools, and we weren't the geekiest. Although I did carry a briefcase and wore a hat, um, but I didn't wear a tie like one of my friends. But it was this group. There were five or six of us, and um, I, I guess maybe it's hard to capture what what was great about it. But there's two things I guess that stand out. One is um, when you got to be seniors. You had the privilege of not having class during first period, and you could hang out in what we called the senior lounge. And we hung out in the senior lounge, and we subscribed to the New York Times. And every morning, we would open up the New York Times and take out the New York Times crossword puzzle and do that together. And to this day, when I visit one of those friends in St. Louis, if I'm there over the weekend or he's at my house over the weekend, we pull out the New York Times Sunday hmm. crossword puzzle and, and, do, and do it together. So there was that, and there was going to um, – Hopkins was just on these outskirts of New Haven. So we would go to Yale – uh, for their film festivals and see all kinds of, uh, <laughs> to paraphrase, to quote C.S. Lewis again, some films suitable for, for us and some <laughs> films not. My mother to this day doesn't know some of the films I saw at Yale. Uh, so I was getting this, you know, kind of this extended cultural education. The other thing that was significant about it was several of my friends were Jewish. Um, not orthodox, not particularly observant, but they, they were Jews, uh, who did, they went to, uh, they tended, they went to temple. And I remember a really significant experience for me was one of my friends invited me to take, uh, to participate in the Feast of Booths, you know, the Tabernacle Festival of Tabernacles, mm-hmm. the Tabernacle Festival. And I remember just being completely entranced by, um, the whole cultural apparatus of being, of being Jewish. Hmm. So it was a lot of fun. So how how big was that? Like how how big was your graduating? Ninety nine. Okay, so it's a relatively Nin- small. Ninety eight of whom went to college. Okay, uh, and then the one who didn't go went the next year. Okay, yeah, and we sent out of that ninety eight. I think we probably sent about you know ten or twelve to Yale, five or six to Harvard, and then the rest to the other Ivies, and then some of the smaller private schools like Amherst, Williams, and Bowdoin, some of the ones in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty pretty successful group yeah i think there's there's something to be said for the for the uh the small the smallness of a school too especially i think during i for me i, I graduated with 39 people mm. also from a private school mm-hmm. and part of what was nice about that which is i mean which is a little bit smaller half the size yeah. of that is that some of that social stratification you you don't have enough people to do it <laughs> entirely right, right, right? exactly like, i mean like if you're gonna have a team for something like <laughs> well a lot of us have to be on that team in order for that to work you know for yeah. whether it's Sports or student government or anything like that, you just kept crossing those lines. Um, and, and I feel like that's that was something that I, you know, my kids are going to go to Moundsview, which is a you know, a big mm-hmm. bench, bigger high school. And I think, oh, well, well, they won't have that experience. And that's of all the of all the things in a private school, that was uh, more so even than like the student teacher ratios or things like that. There mm-hmm. was just this sense that 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 was a small group of people that I, you ended up, I ended up knowing all of them and that right, was a powerful right. thing. Yeah, exactly. So when you, um, when you went, were planning to go to college, went to college, how did you pick where you went? What were you planning on studying? That's a really interesting, to me that's an interesting question. Um, I, you know, I, I met with the uh, guidance counselor who was completely, or not completely, but fairly incompetent. Um, and I don't, I don't remember to be frank, Sam, how I picked my initial group of schools, but I remember sitting there and saying to him, well, what about Bowdoin? So I said my father didn't go to college, and he didn't, but we actually had a family tradition of going to Bowdoin. His father went to Bowdoin, his father's brother went to Bowdoin, and his grandfather, my great-grandfather, went to Bowdoin. 
In fact, um, at Bowdoin, once I got there, I could find the plaque for my great-grandfather's donation to one of the buildings there. Hmm. So because I was aware of this family legacy, I can still remember that moment, sitting in the office with Mr. Heath, was his name, John Heath, awful teacher, of, uh, nice man, but awful teacher. <laughs> um, in fact, if I... If I can be permitted a slight digression, um, one day Mr. Heath didn't show up for math class, and we waited the requisite 10 minutes, and he didn't show. We went down to the senior lounge, and a few minutes later, we were all sitting around. The other privilege of the senior lounge was you got to drink coffee. So we would all were all sitting around the coffee urn getting coffee, and Mr. Heath strolled in. We thought, oh, no, we're busted. Uh, he said, hi, how you doing? And we said, hi, and he got his cup of coffee and strolled out. <laughs> So that's the kind of guy Mr. Heath was, not not always on top of things. So anyway, I remember sitting there, and we were talking about – I was interested in Bucknell. I was interested in – for some reason, I was interested in Pennsylvania because I liked the geography of Pennsylvania. So Bucknell, Dickinson, um, Franklin and Marshall were some of the schools I wanted to visit. Uh, Colgate somehow got on the list because it was upstate New York. I was looking for places that were kind of rural and pretty. And, and then I remember saying to him, what about Bowdoin? And I remember him looking at me like, oh, yeah, I guess you could try that. I mean, I was in the top ten of my class, but why he didn't think I was Bowdoin material, I don't know. But So I did. And um, and I knew at that point, I was pretty sure at that point that I wanted to study English literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I tried to figure out. It's interesting to do a college search before the days of the Internet. You know, trying to figure out, is this a really good school for this particular area or, or, or not? But I think it was just more because there was a family legacy. And I guess I should add to that, I'm named for my grandfather, um, who died three years before I was born. So I'd never met, mm-hmm. never met him. But there was always something about being Barrett Fisher and following in his footsteps in that respect. Anyway, only in that respect. Mm-hmm. He was a chemist, and he was a, evidently uh, a great at chess and played the saxophone. Um, I'm lousy at science. I've never <laughs> been able to master chess, and I can't carry a tune to save my life. <laughs> so, so in terms of uh, of going off to Bowdoin then um, and studying English literature, did you have a, a sense in mind of why you were going? to – I mean, I, beyond the love of books, yeah. sort of um, how much of that was was thinking about? Occupation, vocation, how much of that was this is what I, this is something I'd love to study. I, I'd known from the age of 12 or so I was going to get a PhD. Okay. Yeah. And I, I did. Where does that come from? That's a very good question, and I don't know the answer except to say that um, from a very early age, when you asked me about being nine, from a very early age, I tied my sense of my destiny to what happened in school. I just I, I just thought that what happened in school, what you did with your mind, what you thought about, what you learned, that was just the most important thing in the world. Um, and which is really odd because that wasn't the way my family. I, I was not in an intellectual family. We were not a cultured family. Um, we weren't exactly blue collar. My dad did real estate. Uh, but like I said, we weren't a college-educated family necessarily. But but this idea that um, life was kind of defined by the, the life of the mind. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, where can you have the life of the mind? Well, in school. I mean, I, I didn't see any connection between intellectual pursuits or or using my mind and doing anything out in the world. Mm-hmm. It was all about – and I have to say, I think I was so ignorant of what that meant that I didn't even – even when I went off to graduate school, I didn't have a very clear sense of whether I wanted to teach. Um, I just wanted to keep reading books. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I began to have an inkling of it because I remember when I was a senior at Bowdoin 
and I was doing an honors project with a with a professor there. Um, you know, he gave me the opportunity one day to lead a discussion of Hargadarkas. <laughs> Keeps coming back. Keeps coming back. And I remember, I, okay, I remember sitting in class, and he was the class before that. And he was leading the discussion. And I remember suddenly becoming aware of the fact that I was not aware of how people taught. Hmm. And I remember, I remember writing in the front of my book, I remember taking all these notes, saying, well, he asked this question, then, to try to figure, well, how do you teach people? Which is very odd, right? Because you spend yeah. all your, you spend, you spend all, most of your life sitting in a classroom, but then when somebody says, how do you do this? All of a sudden, wow. you have no idea. See, that's crazy, because I, I assumed that everyone who, everyone who's a college teacher was like me, where it's like, from, Probably, I remember in high school thinking like, okay, I, I'm tra- half my brain is tracking with what you're trying to teach. Half my brain is trying to pay is paying attention to what how you're doing it. Yeah. By the time I got to college, I, it's one of the great things about TAing for CWC is I knew the content, so I got to watch Neil Ettinger and I got to watch Kevin Craig, and I so yeah. I was looking at them saying, all right, how do you teach history? Like, what are you, yeah. what are you doing? What do I like about what you do? What can I learn? So, so that wasn't happening I innately. Am, I am the farthest thing from the natural teacher there is, Sam. Huh? I can remember. In, in fact, I can even deepen this a little bit. I remember thinking in tenth grade, the last thing I want to do is teach. Because I was in a ancient, uh, was it ancient history? Yeah, I was in ancient history class, and uh, everybody in the class had to take turns leading a discussion. And I remember preparing that. I, mine was on Aristotle. And I remember hating the preparation, hating doing it, and feeling at the end that it was a complete disaster. And that's something I didn't want to do. So it took me to the degree that I achieved any ability as a teacher, it was um, very much. Uh, uh, Ray Boer against the grain um, for me to do that. Huh. Yeah. So. That, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. So another question, um, and I, I talked with Dan Taylor about this on my, my last episode. You know, Dan had just, just written his first novel. And, mm-hmm. I mean, Dan is definitely we, – we talked about the tension between being a scholar of literature and being a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, was that – we haven't talked about that at all. Mm-hmm. Was that something that was – that as you thought about your love of literature, that, that was that an avenue? And, and I apologize. I don't know any yeah. – I don't know if, if you – if you are a writer, if you're somebody who thinks about yourself that way in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, but, um, mm-hmm. but that's, that's sort of one of the models of the English, of the English yeah, professor is yeah. the, you know, the professor slash writer, um, which is interesting because I think because other fields, like you don't think of the historian slash person who makes history. Like, you know, it's, there's not the same connection, but I, I think, um, well, you know, there, 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 there's the, the scholar writer like, like Dan who writes in a more, um, creative vein mm-hmm. and i felt like i did I, I i did a lot of creative writing in high school uh, in fact my creative writing teacher in high school was uh was tony giamatti who was bart giamatti's wife uh oh, wow. and at the time he was teaching at yale and then of course he went on to become uh, the commissioner of baseball in fact i'm sorry you're getting me into a digression here but in fact uh, when I was a senior, I did a uh, we did Paradise Lost, which which was another book that set me on fire. I fell in love with I Paradise, love Paradise Lost. Lost, and um, so we wrote you know our big research papers, and then uh, the prof- the teacher of the class, Mr. Smith, um, through the acquaintance through Tony Giamatti, actually gave Bart Giamatti. There were only four of us in the class. I actually gave Bart Giamatti our papers. Huh. And Bart Giamatti read our papers and came in and talked to our class about that. Wow. And what really irritated me was there was another guy in the class, David Stevens, who was not a particularly good student, not a particularly bright student, not a particularly good writer. And 
Darn it, Bart Giamatti, for some reason, thought his paper was more interesting than mine. <laughs> One of the great disappointments of my life. Oh, interesting. Any, any, anyway, so I did, I did a fair amount of creative writing in, in, in high school, and Tony Giamatti told me I had a great future as a creative writer. And then I, and then I took creative writing uh, in college, and, and, and first of all, didn't really do particularly well. Um, and secondly, decided that I did not have the, the itch to write. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you're going to be a creative writer, it's got to be something where you say to yourself, you know, I've really got to do this. There was a time, this is bringing back another memory, there was a time in my life when I thought I was going to become a lawyer. And I and I thought that I would be like John, there wasn't a John Grisham then, but that's what I would do. I would be okay. a lawyer by day and I would write novels at night. So, well, I, so I did. I did right. think about it, and this this fascinates me too. The sort of the, the notion of like, what is the if you, what is the the right? Not that there's a right profession for someone who's who's going to be a writer. But I, I um, a few months ago, I read um, I finally read Ulysses, and then mm-hmm. I read the the big um, Richard Elliman biography mm-hmm. of Joyce, and I was fascinated by all these people, uh, all these these Irishmen who wanted to become medical students because <laughs> then their ambition was to be men of letters. But the thought was, well, if I'm a doctor, I'll have the ability then yeah. to become. A, it's just like. Yeah. And I told my wife, this is like, what a weird thing. Like, why would you become a doctor so then you could, you know, yes, yeah, so then you could Hellenize Ireland. Like, what a weird, what a weird thing. Well, I mean, and there is a kind of whole bunch of doctor writers. I mean, you know, uh, I think about Chekhov and uh, Walker Percy. Right. You know, so there, and right. uh, William, uh, William Carlos Williams. Right. So there are kind of all these well, and, doctor and, and, writers. And oftentimes it, it works their way into what they write, too. Yeah. Like, like there's, there is a, a kind of understanding about the human body or an understanding right, about right. yeah yeah and 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 then i went through a period where um write, writing my dissertation was was extremely difficult um for a number of reasons and i and i think i kind of got alienated from writing for a while um and oddly enough the the kind of writing that i do now there's two kinds of writing i do now and um there there's the professional writing that i do which and this is going to sound very uncreative but it is uncreative to me um drafting memos, writing letters of recommendation. I mean, I'm actually, I actually enjoy doing it and I'm pretty good at it. But the other kind of writing I really like is, uh, I've had opportunity for the past several years to, uh, to do some preaching. Okay. And, and writing sermons, um, is really, I really enjoy it because, um, one of the things I've gotten good at is understanding the difference between writing to be written, to be read, and writing to be heard. Hmm. Um, and I just, I, I find taking a biblical text, one of the things I'm really good at, I think, I love close readings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so any any writing where I'm taking a passage and I'm really kind of working it and making connections, uh, that's that's what I draw. I'm working on a sermon right now for my church. Okay. <laughs> so that's why this is in my head right now. And uh, And actually, interestingly enough, this connects with our early conversation. I deliberately picked a passage that I've preached on at least three times before, and I'm not looking at any of those other sermons. I can't because my computer at home was stolen and all the sermons were on there. So I can't look at any of the previous sermons I've done on this, on this passage, but I happen to know that what I'm writing has no bearing on any, on any of the previous ways I've approached oh, this passage. So that's what I really, I really kind of enjoy doing. Interesting. So, yeah, okay. yeah. So, so what was Bowden like for you to circle back there? Yeah. Um, well, there's kind of two questions, answers to that question. One is, what was Bowdoin like for me? Um, academically, it was a smooth transition. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and this is going to sound a little bit like boasting, but you asked. Freshman year in, in the fall, I was in a, probably would have been the equivalent of a 300 level course here. Okay. And after, and it was an old school teacher, it was the guy who actually went on to become my uh, honors thesis advisor. 
he was actually a Hawthorne scholar, but also a Conradian. Anyway, this was a, this was a, um, gosh, what was it? It was a, was it the Victorian lit class? Yeah, he was teaching Victorian lit, uh, which is really an odd experience. I never before had anybody say, you know, read 50 pages of poetry tonight. Hmm. It just seemed insane to me. Anyway, um, he was old school, so he would do things like, get fired for this today. I can remember him passing exams out and making comments. Hmm. Like, literally, he'd stand up passing, yeah, good job. I don't know what went wrong on this one. <laughs> um, anyway, we had an in-class exam, and I've always been pretty good at in-class exams. For whatever reason, I write pretty well under pressure. And so this is like my freshman year in the fall, first exam, and he is sitting up there at his desk. I still picture him sitting there. He says, well, here's a really outstanding essay, uh, uh, answer to this essay question on this exam. And he sits there and he starts reading my answer. So that's one way to hmm. say how is Bowden, which makes me sound really grandiose. <laughs> um, socially, it was miserable. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I talked earlier about a circle of friends. I, I never really got a circle of friends. I had a couple of friends that, at Bowden, but it didn't really last. So the the greatest benefit to me of Bowden was that's where I met my wife. Okay. Why do you Why do you suppose it was so different? I don't know. Um, you know, part of me thinks well, you know I should have been in my element because Bowden was full of full of preppies. Uh, it also had a drinking culture that I experimented with. Um, it had a fraternity culture. I didn't. I was only the ten percent that didn't join a fraternity, and so um, I thought that that bespoke a certain um, uh, admirable independence of mind on my, on my part. I don't know, Sam. It, it's you know, I, I I just never found very many people that I kind of clicked with there for whatever whatever reason. So, and both my wife and I had the same experience. We hmm. she was in a fraternity for a while until they kicked the women out. Um, and we both look back and say, yeah, something. And we both look back, and she and I both still have high school friends. Mm-hmm. And neither of us has college friends. So okay, yeah. this this is an unfair question to ask ask it this way, but let's remove the fact that you met your wife there. Yes, was that a good choice of a school for you? Do you think? I mean, do you think yes. that, that ultimately? Okay. Yes, ultimately, if if I, if I think about, did I get a good education there? Absolutely. Okay. Um, the the teaching by and large was of a very high quality. Uh, the classes were small, and even though I said earlier, you know, it was an easy transition, the fact is, I did, I did learn a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I, yeah, would I do it again? Probably. Okay. Yeah, because you know, I suspect I might have had social issues anywhere I went. I don't uh-huh. think it was peculiar to Bowdoin. Sure. So. Sure. And I love being in Maine. In fact, I took a year off because Amy was two years behind me before graduate school. I, I took a year off and just lived in town and 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 uh, waited on tables in the Harriet Beecher Stowe house. Wow. So, yeah. Because that's where uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe lived when she wrote. Her husband was a professor of religion at Bowdoin, and that's where she lived when she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So, so what were the things that you read in, in at Bowdoin that got you excited? Um, let me think. Well, certainly, um, that, that's where I decided I really wanted to focus on, uh, on, on British literature. Okay. So, and, and I've always had a, you know, a strong love of the 19th century British novel. So I would say a lot of, you know, uh, and some of it I'd already read in high school, but certainly reading, uh, reading Dickens and reading Hardy, uh, Austin, uh, the Victorian poets, mm-hmm. um, more Conrad, of course, um, some of the early 20th century stuff, Joyce, as well as, um, as Faulkner, and, and probably Bowdoin is where I actually figured out that 
Um, I could like Hemingway. Okay. Uh, Hemingway was one of those people where I could appreciate him, but I couldn't like him. But I think actually reading all of his short stories helped me to really like him. If I can digress for a second, yeah. what what didn't you like about Hemingway? Initially? Oh, the style. Okay. Because as you can imagine, when I name those 19th century authors, sure, sure. I love a florid style. Okay. Um, so the lean I, prose I, oh, is that. Okay. Lean prose was really hard for me. But after a while, um, when I figured out what it was that Hemingway was, was doing – and I think it's been helpful because I think it's made me open to other writers whose prose is also uh, lean, almost almost minimalist. Because okay. yeah. he, he's, I ask only because he's somebody that my wife and I divide on. I, I really like Hemingway, uh, some Hemingway for sure. And my wife just, she's, I mean, she's read him, but wants nothing to do with him. And I, so I keep like, you know, I'll read the last couple pages of a movable feast and say, how could somebody who write, wrote this, like not excite you? But, uh, but, but, but I would, I wouldn't say that it's a, that, that, that this has resulted in a blanket appreciation for sparer prose because, um, in the last part of his career, Conrad's prose became much, much leaner uh-huh. and I can't, I don't like it. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy reading later Conrad huh. at all. Huh. Um, I think there's other ways in which later Conrad isn't very good, but that's that's part of it. Except with the exception of uh, the Secret Sharer, mm-hmm. uh, the Secret Sharer is brilliant and uh, and it's very lean. So okay. Yeah. Uh, one other uh, author you haven't mentioned yet that I that I I wrote a list of things that I associate with you, um, and I because I know you taught about him a lot is Shakespeare. I was, I, I was about to say something about Shakespeare. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I was about to say that one of the when you asked about Bowden. Um, I t- even though I took a Shakespeare course there, um, that's not where my love of Shakespeare comes from. Okay. In fact, one of the ironies about Shakespeare is the last time I actually took a Shakespeare course, I was a sophomore in college. I never took any Shakespeare in uh, um, in graduate school. Hmm. I did teach Shakespeare. Um, I was a TA for a course called Shakespeare in Politics. And that probably started, that was probably the beginning of my uh, love for Shakespeare. And then when I got to Bethel, as with any small college English department, everybody's got to be a generalist. Sure, sure. Right? So um, I had taken Milton in, in high school, in, in uh, grad school, and I thought I wanted to do Milton. So I taught Milton, and then I taught Shakespeare, because I don't know how, you probably don't know anything about my position, but when I was hired, I was not the right person for the position. Um, the person who had retired, uh, Janine Bollmeyer, was basically um, a Renaissance scholar. So I am really Dan Taylor um, <laughs> in terms of my discipline, sure, sure. my discipline. I mean, all the courses that Dan was teaching when I came, Britlett too, he was teaching at that time a Victorian literature course. He was teaching 20th century. That was what I'd been prepared in. So why in the world they hired me, uh, I don't know. I know why I took the job, but why they hired me, I guess it, they liked me. So, you know, and I know that the other thing was Thomas Becknell had developed a course called Novel and Culture, and he voluntarily gave that course up so I would have something in my area. Because hmm. my actual major in graduate school was actually prose fiction. Hmm. I didn't major in a, I minored in a period, but I majored in prose fiction. So when I came, I had this kind of smorgasbord of classes. Uh, so I taught what was then Intro to Literature, now Great Writers. I taught Novel and Culture. Um, I taught Milton. I taught uh, Shakespeare, a couple of other things. And so the irony of this was uh, after teaching Milton, I think once, I said, I can't teach this. And I gave it to Dan Ritchie, or I asked Dan Ritchie if he wanted it. Mm-hmm. But I held on to Shakespeare because um, it just, I don't know, I just felt, and, and any... 
any scholarly expertise I've developed in Shakespeare all came for, as a result of, of teaching and getting fascinated with uh, Shakespeare's text as, as scripts and the theatrical element of Shakespeare. I got deeply into the cinematic aspect of Shakespeare. Um, I just found that endlessly uh, fascinating. So, huh. yeah. And 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 talk about texts that bear rereading and rereading. Oh, abs- a- absolutely. Yeah, 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 and, and yeah, and, and talk about texts whose you know so many of those phrases come to come come to my mind. When, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. So before we get to Cornell, I want to I want to talk about the year between because that's actually yeah. I think a. Um, Something I wish in lots of places in our students' lives that would exist. I think um, we we live in a, a world where we're uh, where students accelerate through things, right? That mm-hmm. that that now to be a high school senior, you also have to be a college freshman at the same time, right, or right. sometimes a high school junior, yeah. and you have to graduate in three years or two and a half years, and and it's all about sort of getting out and getting on to the next thing. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I just if if you want to just tell anything about that one year in between, yeah. I think that's a valuable. Well, there, there were actually two reasons why I took the year off. One I've already indicated. Uh, Amy was two years behind me, and uh, the idea of being apart for two years was not that interesting to either one of us. So I thought, well, if I at least take a year off and hang around, hang around her, and I had a job. But the other reason was. Um, I had been disappointed and some of my and my professors had been surprised that I didn't get into uh, Yale. Mm-hmm. For some reason, my goal was to go to Yale for grad school. I was just convinced I needed to go to Yale. And at Bowdoin, we had – I alluded earlier to an honors thesis. It wasn't an honors program. It was departmental honors. Um, and so I had done an honors thesis and I would gotten highest honors. And so I was considered, you know, so I was summa cum laude, highest honors. Why wouldn't I get into Yale? And my uh, my, the- my honors thesis advisor was himself a Yale graduate with a Yale PhD. So there was this sense of almost licking my wounds, you know, mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll do it again. Um, I didn't get into Yale. I didn't get into Princeton. I got into, I think I got into Duke or Chapel Hill. I can't remember which. And then, and then Cornell. So I thought, so I'll, I'll do it again. But the other thing is, there actually was a third thing, which I haven't mentioned, and that is I was still not fully convinced I wanted to go to grad school, despite my aspirations. And I did a little bit of um, trying to explore other options. Okay. I can remember April of my senior year working, walking for the first time into the Career Counseling Center at Bowdoin, <laughs> which consisted of a small room with a bunch of books on the shelves. And I had done a little bit of writing for the college paper, and I thought about, you know, maybe maybe I want to explore journalism. And I did a little tentative exploration of trying to find some opportunities uh, in local papers, and it kind of didn't didn't go anywhere. So that year was spent mostly um, uh, reading, you know, kind of getting ready for graduate school and uh, and waiting on tables. And, you know, uh, I don't know that it was a model for the best way to spend that year, um, but... That's what I did. So what was what was your experience in graduate school like then compared to mm. what Bowdoin was like? Graduate school was a slap in the face. A um, couple things I would say about graduate school. Graduate school is one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. Um, when I went to graduate school, I was not a Christian. Um, my brother had become a Christian three years before as a result of some issues in our family in any way. And so I was not hostile to faith, 
But I had taken this position. I don't know where I came up with it. But I had taken this position that some people were psychologically predisposed to be people of faith and some weren't. And I was one of those who wasn't, even though I appreciated it. In fact, I took a lot of religion classes at, at Bowdoin. I was, I was close to, a, if they, if Bowdoin had allowed a triple major, I could have been an English, philosophy, religious, religion, triple major. Hmm. I had five out of six philosophy courses for a major and five out of six religion courses for a major. So I was very interested in religion as a intellectual pursuit. Some of the writing I'd done, creative writing I'd done in high school actually parodied religious texts, <laughs> including a, Including a, a terrible allegory called Upstairs, Downstairs about God coming to earth and being drunk on Heineken. Um, anyway, <laughs> a little blasphemous, I suppose. But, and I read C.S. Lewis. Uh-huh. And, and, I, and, I, and I also remember, um, during that year between, uh, undergraduate and graduate school, uh, reading, uh, Lewis's Mere Christianity, reading Hans Kung of all people. Um, although I don't think I got all the way through that. So it wasn't that I was close to the idea of faith, but I wasn't a person of faith. And I went off to graduate school, and a couple things happened. I was separated from Amy, and I was suddenly a small fish in a pretty big pond. And at the end of of that first semester, as students often do here, I had given each of my professors a an envelope so they could send their final, my final paper to me over the, look at it over the break. And in one of the classes, which was the uh, history of the novel one, which is my area of expertise, I got my paper back and got the grad school equivalent of a B. I'd never gotten a B on an English paper in my life. And the sense of disappointment that I had and the sense that, oh, if I'm not really top-notch, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing, which is really a stupid way to think about it. It made me realize, and this went along with the fact that my brother had been talking to me a lot about faith, and I'd seen a change in my brother's life. I'd seen a change in my mother and stepfather's life. They'd all decided to follow Christ. What it, what it made me really think about was, what in the world is the foundation of my life if getting a lower grade than I wanted on a graduate school research paper makes me wonder what's the meaning or purpose of life. So I think it was a catalyst, mm-hmm. you know, so, so that's the first thing I would say about graduate school, that it was, it was a, it was a catalyst for me to really rethink, uh, what was foundational in, in, in my life. The other thing I would say about graduate school was it taught me that I actually didn't know how to write. Um, because the way I used to write, and I think about this very clearly, the way I used to write is um, I would spend hours on the first paragraph. And once I got the first paragraph right, it was just a matter of outlining and, and writing. And I never really, really revised globally. Mm-hmm. What I really ended up doing was once I had it written, written down that way, you know, do a little bit of editing, and then I just basically type it up. I really had no sense of what it meant to really take a piece of writing and run it through a bunch of revisions because I didn't need to. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I did was, was good enough. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember feeling a certain degree of contempt for one of my professors at, at Bowdoin because I felt like no matter what I churn out, he's going to give it a good grade. Um, but that wasn't good enough for graduate school. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, Sam, I would have learned to write if it hadn't been for the word processor. Because um, the physical act of writing I find so onerous, my handwriting is so illegible, that I don't think that I ever would have developed the 
the um, not only the discipline but even now the pleasure of revising, which is what writing really is, without the ease that word processing gave you. So the word processor, and that's what we had initially, a word processor, and then in 1984 I bought my first uh, computer. I bought a Mac uh, 128K. Um, I I know for a fact I could not have written a dissertation without without that. Hmm. And that's when I discovered that I needed to learn how to really write. And that's when I discovered that the act of writing was was as much the act of thinking as it was the act of uh, conceiving ideas and putting them down on a page. And, and it took me a long time. I mean, I was dissertating. And I remember my first dissert- chapter of my dissertation was 50 pages long on Conrad's Nostromo. I remember being so pleased with myself. I wrote 50 pages. This is great. I'm going to knock this dissertation off in a year. And I remember giving the the 50 pages to my thesis advisor, and he was a great advisor. I mean, this guy, I mean, we should be as responsible with our undergraduates. I mean, he he would read a chapter and get back to me within a week. Hmm. It was amazing, Um, which is one more thing I should say about graduate school in a minute. But I remember going in and talking about that chapter, and he kind of, he put it down on the table in front of me. He said, okay, what's your main idea? Hmm. I didn't have a main idea. I wrote for 50 pages. I don't have a main idea. I and mean, that seems so... I mean, how can you be a third-year graduate student and not know that a piece of writing has to have a main idea? Right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that was really that was really formative for me. Um, and the other thing I would say is, as I just alluded to, um, Cornell was a very, very humane graduate program. Um, I had a... Like I said, he was a great advisor. He He treated us the way I would want our faculty to treat our undergraduates. Um, uh, he would gather, he had about nine or ten these uh, students he was advising. We would gather every, once a month in his office, he would give us a piece of uh, criticism to read. And we would read it, and then we would sit around and talk about it, and he would ask us these great questions. And ultimately, he would always ask, what difference does this theoretical approach make to how you read texts? He was a model. Huh. He was great. Yeah, yeah. So my wife couldn't stand him. Um, <laughs> so when I wanted to name our son Daniel, she she said no. <laughs> <laughs> so so what is your road from from Cornell to Bethel? Um, that's also an interesting story. Um, I finished the I finished in the uh, spring of '87. So I went on the job market in '86, and um, while I was in grad school, I did a little bit of, uh, I read people like J.W. Sire at the Universe Next Door. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I became aware that there were a group of evangelical Christians that studied literature. I mean, Wheaton College, if you'd said the Wheaton College to me before I went to Cornell, I would have said, oh yeah, that's a, that's a women's school in Massachusetts. Hmm. I mean, I knew nothing about Christian higher ed. Hmm. So I got myself educated about that. So I knew about places like Wheaton and Calvin, uh, Westmont. So when I went on the grad, when I went on the job market, I said, okay, I'm just going to apply broadly and see who responds. And it was the Christian schools that responded, hmm. to be frank. So the first year out, um, I, I was a finalist at Northwestern in Iowa and for a tenure track job. And then I was, um, I was offered a one year position at Calvin. Mm-hmm. And um, my advisor, whose advice I generally followed, um, thought that that was a big to take that job would be a big mistake. 
The Calvin yeah. job. Yeah. yeah. First of all, what, what what the heck is Calvin? Right. You know, I mean, seriously, I, I don't think he had any awareness of Christian colleges whatsoever or universities. And then secondly, he said it doesn't make any sense because you can stay here. We'll give you um, a fellowship. You can teach and write for a year, and then you can get a really good job. At the same time, uh, Amy was, um, she would have been seven months pregnant. And we had a midwife we worked with. We had a church we were going to. We had a circle of friends. So I'm not a very bold person. I don't often do things that other people consider radical or even unwise. But I had a really strong conviction, partly persuaded by the chair of the department at Calvin, that doing the taking the Calvin job had a lot of advantages. So one of his arguments was, okay, you're going to see whether you want to be at a Christian college or not. Mm-hmm. His other argument was, we're a good college. He said, you get a year of teaching experience here. You publish an article or two. And I did publish an article. I was my first year at Calvin. You publish an article and you're, you'll be in a good position on the job market. So I think it's the one time I did something that ultimately my wife would have preferred that I not do. Hmm. So I took the job and we went to Calvin. I had a really good experience teaching at Calvin. Amy had one of the worst years of her life uh, living in Grand Rapids. Um, so when I finished the Calvin gig, um, I went back on the market, and I was once again a finalist at Northwestern, and I was a finalist at Westmont. And so I had – they didn't even bring me down to Northwestern again. Uh, Roy Anker, who was the chair at the time, said, <clears throat> we know you. It's fine. So didn't even go down. Went out to Westmont. Uh, Westmont had me actually teach two classes or three, at least two, maybe three. They really ran me through the ringer. Um, they offered me the job on the spot hmm. before I even left campus, which is really, I would never, ever do that as, a, as an administrator. Um, but the funny thing is there were two candidates for the job at, at Westmont and two candidates for the job at Northwestern, two finalists, and it was me and Joel Westerholm. And I actually stood in the department chair's office at Westmont while he talked to the department chair at Northwestern, hmm. and they did horse trading. Basically, well, let's see. If we offer it to Fisher and he takes it, then you offer it to Westholm and he takes it. But if we offer it to Fisher and he doesn't take it, we'll take Westerholm and you can have it. Seriously, <laughs> seriously. So they offered me the job, and I said, well, I, I can't say yes right now. So I flew home and... Uh, you know, one of the issues with, issues with Westmont, of course, is it's in, it's in Santa Barbara, one of the most expensive places you can possibly live. I looked at a two-bedroom bungalow for $240,000. The equivalent, <laughs> in 1988. Equivalent house in Minnesota, to get ahead of myself a little bit, I basically bought the equivalent house in Minnesota the next year for $59,000. <laughs> so what we were looking at with Westmont was um, we probably – and Westmont will will go in with you and buying a house. At least they did in those days. But you had to put 15% down. I was out of graduate school. I had a small salary at Calvin. I had literally no money. So we were looking at probably having to live 10 miles away, putting the kids in daycare, my wife taking a job. We were looking at all kinds of lifestyle choices we didn't want to make. The rub was I had not yet visited Bethel. I was I was I was a candidate at Bethel, but I hadn't gone there yet. So and Westmont and I wasn't savvy enough to tell Westmont they just had to wait. 
You know, they told me, you got to give us an answer. In fact, before I even gave him an answer, David Downing, who was the chair, started saying things like, well, gee, if you're really hesitating, maybe this isn't the right place for you, which is really kind of an awful thing to say. So I was put in a position of having to make a decision on Westmont before I even knew if Bethel was in the mix. So I probably should have gotten some advice to say, no, no, you tell them, they're going to have to wait. So I turned them down. So Ed Erickson, who was the chair at, Cal- at, at Calvin, this interesting, interesting parallel to the year before with my thesis advisor, he says to me, I think you've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> Which is really reassuring when you're 28 years old and you have, uh, you're the only income earner in your family and you have two kids under the age of, of four. Right. That's really he- helpful to hear. Ed was otherwise a very supportive person, but at that moment he was not. So when I came to, to Bethel, Obviously, there was a lot of pressure for me to like Bethel and Bethel to like me. But I have to say, to be honest, that really didn't play into the decision. I really liked Bethel, and Bethel really liked me. Hmm. So, yeah. So the rest is so. So what were your what were your impressions of Bethel? You know, circa eighty eight, eighty nine, whatever. Okay, here 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 here's a really strong impression. I was actually it's a pre impression. Before I came to Bethel, and I don't know how I found this, how it got its way into my hand, but I was reading Dan Taylor's Myth of Certainty. And I said to myself, any school that has a person added who writes a book like this is a school I want to be part of. Hmm. And so when I was talking to Dan about the book when when we visited, um, he's, he hastened to assure me that the character in the school in the book was not was not Bethel. It was in fact Northwestern. Um, the other the other thing I'll say about the other impression I have about Bethel was um, I think I've told this story publicly before, so I can say it. But uh, Dan Taylor told me a bald faced lie uh, when I asked him if it was possible buy a buy a house on an assistant professor's <laughs> salary. Of course, you know his wife is a real is a right, realtor. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, the impression I had Sam was I, I think that. You know, it's really interesting that, you know, those of us who are, who think we're intellectuals think we make decisions based on certain kinds of objective or intellectual merits. But the fact is, ultimately, I went to Bowdoin rather than Colgate because I did a campus visit at both places and I was made to feel welcome at Bowdoin in a way I was not at Colgate. Hmm. Uh, they put me in a suite with four other freshmen at Colgate who had no idea how to take care of me. They put me in a, two-person um, uh, suite with seniors at Bowdoin who knew how to show me the ropes. And so my strongest impression when I came here was was really of collegiality. Um, I had dinner, um, you know, you always take a candidate to dinner. I had a dinner at Muffaletta with Dan Taylor and Dan Ritchie. And I still remember that dinner. And I, and I, and I remember the way they talked to each other about what they were reading and what they were interested in. Um, Thomas Becknell was extraordinarily uh, kind to me. Um, I'll have to be frank. I have very little recollection of the students. Um, I remember that I taught. What did I do here? I'm getting mixed up now. I remember I taught in AC 330. Um, I can't remember if that was Victorian lit or not. I don't. I didn't have a very strong impression of the students, but I had a very strong impression of this as a very uh, collegial community. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I, did, I, I don't remember what the weather was like at all. Um, I know I remember on my visit to Northwestern, the weather was lousy, but I don't remember what the weather was like. But you had had a year in Grand Rapids. But I had a year so, in Grand Rapids, yeah. yeah so you're, yeah. you're ready for it. Yeah, I was ready. Um, well, I want to fast forward a little bit um, mm-hmm. to thinking about uh, when did you when did you make the jump from being a teacher to being an administrator? 
How far back does that? I'm trying to remember. I mean, I, I yeah. remember it happening. I'm trying to remember when right. it was. Well, you know, there's the emotional jump and there's the actual jump. I, I was thinking back in the late 90s about whether or not I wanted to keep teaching. Um, you know, I said earlier that teaching was something that didn't come naturally to me. I really had to work hard at liking almost every aspect of teaching. Hmm. Um, but then back in the late 90s, I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm sort of at a – at a turning point in my career, either I'm going to kind of throw myself into teaching or I'm going to look for a different avenue. And at that point, after 10 years of working at it, I felt like, yeah, I really, there's a lot of stuff I'm liking about teaching. And so I really wanted to work on my uh, scholarly agenda and start doing more with Shakespeare and film and getting a few things published. Um, and then I was also department chair and I was, I did faculty development co- coordinator for a couple of years. Um, and I also realized that I, I had really, kind of embedded myself in Bethel, that Bethel was really very much home for me. Mm-hmm. So I sort of said, okay, this is it. You know, it's been a hard transition, but I've really made myself a teacher, and that's what I'm going to do. And I, and, I, and, I, and I was doing that. I was going to Shakespeare conferences. I was working on some scholarly stuff. And then in 2004, the end of, because uh, it was in the 2000, yeah, 2004, 2005 school year, that's when the administration created the, the divisions, that we now have because the faculty had grown. And that's when Deb Harless, who was dean at the time, said, I can't do this as a single dean. Mm -hmm. We've gotten too big and too complex. So that's when they created the divisions and they proposed the associate dean positions. And they went through a few permutations and ultimately ended up being a five-sevenths position. So teaching five-sevenths, I'm sorry, administering five-sevenths, teaching two-sevenths. So I was on uh, the Academic Affairs Committee, which was the committee of all chairs at that time. And so we were the committee that they ran the first draft through. We kind of critiqued it. Uh, they posted it. And um, Amy said to me, I went home one day after talking about this. Amy said, well, are you going to apply to that for that? I said, no. And I said, I, you know, I thought about it a few years ago, and I kind of decided I'm gonna, just going to commit myself to teaching. She said, okay, that's good. So the job was posted for maybe a month or so. And um, I got an email from, I remember I was sitting in my office, AC 316, and I got an email from Deb Harless around 8 o'clock that morning saying, you know, Barrett, have you have you thought about applying for this job? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'd never been solicited before. So I went to reply. I have, but I've decided not to, but thanks for asking. And I can't remember, to be frank, if I ever sent that or if I said, huh, I wonder why she asked me that. I wonder if I should follow up. So I remember making it up. Uh, she was available that day. I remember going into her office like three hours later, 11 o'clock that morning, and saying, well, you know, Deb, I was going to, uh, yeah, I, I was going to say thanks, but no thanks, but now I'm kind of intrigued. Why, you know, why did you ask me that? She said, well, when we created that position, you were the person I had in mind. Oh, well, that's that's interesting. Um, so I said, well, you know, kind of let, let, let me think about it. So I went home and, you know, I talked about it with Amy. And and she said, well, what do you think? I said, well, you know, I thought I would left that behind me, but there are some things that are attractive about it. So then I went to write the letter of application. And it was the easy, it was one of the easiest pieces of writing I've ever done. Hmm. Because I realized that everything that job was asking me to do lined up with things that I liked to do. Hmm. Um, I had administrative experience as a department chair, and I was good at it. I didn't always like it, 
because it was really hard to balance. I can remember coming home sometimes and saying to Amy, I worked all day and I got nothing done. Now mm-hmm. I have to prepare a class. Right. And right, all right. department chairs know about that. Absolutely. So I can't say that I felt deeply fulfilled, but I was department chair for nine years and I got a lot of strokes from people, which we all like. And, and I did, there were aspects of being department chair that I really, really enjoyed. Um, I'm, I'm actually kind of a nitty-gritty detail person, so I kind of like that stuff. And then there was the working with faculty. Well, I've been faculty development coordinator. And I've always, to be frank, liked my faculty colleagues more than I've liked my students. Mm-hmm. I like students well, mm-hmm. but I, I've i never been able to build a relationship with students, even through two England terms. I've never been able to build a relationship with students that I've seen other faculty build. Um, and... And that's okay. I, I, but I realize that I really gravitate towards, and that's true when I was a kid. You asked what I was like when I was nine years old. I hated other kids. I wanted to be with the adults. Hmm. Um, I was promoted to the adults table Thanksgiving before anybody else. <laughs> and I was asked to say the more, the prayer before anybody else, you know. So I've always wanted to be older. Sure, sure. You know, uh, so anyway, so I wrote this letter of application and it, 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 it was like, I don't get many signs from God. And I'm suspicious of anything that you think is a sign from God. But it did seem like one of the themes in my life has been, and what, what was unusual about what I did when I both went to Calvin and when I went to um, Bethel, is I tend to be really passive and let events lead me. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those examples where I felt like events were leading me. Hmm. Um, so there you have it. And now, now it's been almost it's been, 10 years. I, I cannot believe it. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that. If I hang in here till I retire, I will actually have been an administrator longer than I will have been a faculty That's member. That's a crazy, crazy it's a, it's, it's a we, And actually, um, the first flack, the first bit of flack I took for moving to administration was not from any of my colleagues, but it's actually from my son. Because huh. he was a uh, my first year as uh, as associate dean was his senior year, <laughs> and he said, "Dad, I just don't know if I can deal with this change." Like you know, he, and he still he still kicks a little bit about the idea that I'm an administrator. So he's sure that I'm different from other That's administrators. Right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to I want to turn back um, as we're we're starting to round up here um, to one one of the one note I have on here that you've sort of talked about in in different ways, but in terms of the things that I wrote down that that uh, I associate with you is sort of your interest in film. Yeah, and you've sort of talked about that from even very early on, yeah. going to the films at Yale, things like that. Yeah. Um, when did that sort of intersect with kind of your life as a scholar? Okay. Well, I, I, I want to say one more thing, though, about oh, film. No, I want to say something about film because I actually have an, an originary memory. Oh, okay. Even okay. better. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, to be fair, I was just trying to make a short film question. So oh, if you want to talk more, great. I, yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was in high school, and I think I was probably in 11th grade, and I had a very good friend, friend named Gary Kleinman, uh, and, and Gary had friends at Yale. And um, actually, Gary wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> Get back to that thing. <laughs> and he had seen um, A Clockwork Orange. And I had not yet seen it. And he was telling me about about the film and about all the levels of interpretation. And I think that was the first time that it occurred to me that films were like texts. Mm-hmm. And that films were actually intellectual as well as visual and emotional experiences and that was the beginning of my love affair with stanley kubrick before i had even seen any one of his films the clockwork orange uh and then i also remember about the same time um citizen kane was shown on tv 
And I don't know what I'd heard about Citizen Kane or what I'd heard about Orson Welles, but I remember uh, so looking forward to seeing Citizen Kane for the first time. So it kind of originates in high school, and then originates with going to the Yale, Yale Film Society. And then when I was at Cornell, which had a film society, I took a course in Victorian literature. And, you know, I have a pretty good irony detector, mm -hmm. and I've been accused of having a dry sense of humor, which I don't understand at all. Um, and in that, and this is my freshman, this is my first year in graduate school, and I do have a streak of earnestness, which I try to repress, but it does, <laughs> it does bubble up. And so I think it must have been my earnestness that got appealed to. The professor, who I didn't know very well, so I didn't know when he was being ironic and when he wasn't, told the class that a a Cornell Film Society membership was a requisite for being in the course. So I I signed up. <laughs> and Sam, I remember coming to him at the end of the towards the end of the semester and saying something. I remember how I put this, but saying something based on the lines of, well, you know, a, a, as you told us to do, I've been going to all the the Cornell films. And I don't think I was looking for a grade. I wasn't that stupid, but I was looking for some kind of affirmation, like, oh, yes, you... And he kind of looked at me. He said, what? I said, well, you said at the beginning of the semester we had to go... Oh, he said, I went... I was not to... Anyway. <laughs> but, but, but the question about when it, where, when it became part of my scholarly interest, I, it would be... Um, it would definitely be Shakespeare. And it would be initially, even back at Cornell when in the early days of VHS tapes, when VHS and beta was battling it, um, we were teaching Shakespeare and using the that BBC uh, series that they did in the late 70s, early 80s. So the idea that, um, and those are intended to be, it was a really dumb idea, but they were trying to make these authoritative, you know, period um, productions, and most of them were pretty bad. But the idea that, you know, analyzing uh, Shakespeare through performance, especially performance on video, uh, was actually part of, you know, more deeply understanding the text. Mm -hmm. But then that morphed into um, the whole Shakespeare on film uh, industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess I just ended up, because in any analysis film, ad I mean, adaptation is a really interesting area. You know, whether you're adapting a story or a novel, but mm -hmm. in the case of Shakespeare, the idea that you had these adaptations, and so then you could start to think about, um, it, it complexified, if I could say it that way, mm -hmm. it complexified your interpretation of, of, of the text. But also with Shakespeare, of course, it, it brings alive something that's really hard to, uh, that's hard to get on the page. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so I think part of it was I was just trying to help students right. get past the difficulty of, of, of reading it. And also with certain Shakespearean texts, especially the comedies, man, you really need a performance to get why they're funny. Right. You know, right, and right. so I, you know, so that's, and, and then I got into, you know, doing comparative. Like let's, uh, I, I actually did a course, as you may know, called Shakespeare and Film, which I only got to teach once, but Part of the idea of the course was that we would watch at least two, uh, maybe three different versions of the same hmm. of the same play on on film. Oh, I bet yeah. that's fascinating. Oh, it's yeah. incredibly fun. Well, I remember I remember thinking uh, the the Branagh Hamlet, mm -hmm. um, um, watching that and realizing like he made. Uh, Fortinbras really important, and I, I need somebody. Oh who, yeah, somebody like I, I never thought about that because he's not really a character because he's only shows up at the end. That's right. But but throughout, and it's been a long time since I saw this film, so I could be wrong. But my memory is oh. throughout that film, you keep seeing him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. You see these little flashbacks. Yeah. Or or the other thing that Brandon does in that film is you know there's always been this there's always been it, but there's this debate 
about the Hamlet-Ophelia relationship. What is the nature of that relationship before she breaks up with him? Well, Branna has them in bed together. Mm-hmm. And and we don't and, and we don't know. But but the great thing about film is you can do these things visually. You don't have to add any lines. You can do these things visually, and then you've basically created an interpretation. Right. So what I found great about teaching with film was was you know one of the things I was helping students to do, and I would do this if we went to the theater as well. And that is how is this performance an interpretation? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just creates so many. So many layers, and then you can do you know this scene of uh, opposite that scene, or this character opposite that character in different versions. Yeah. And it just, well, I even think about the the, the, the first film that you mentioned, um, you know, I, watching A Clockwork Orange and reading A Clockwork Orange, yeah. and feeling like it was one of those weird times where I feel like I think Kubrick got this better than Burgess. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Where, where I, yeah. I I can't rem- I don't remember which I encountered first, whether I read the book first or mm-hmm. saw the movie, but I remember reading the book and thinking like. You need like the first half was great. The language is amazing. Yes, but it's like you need to go at this harder. And yeah. I, then I, I, I must have read the book first, and then I saw the movie and thought, "Oh, Kubrick gets it. Like, yeah. like he, yeah. this is he's he's more effective than yeah. my experience of the book was." Yeah. So. But let, let, let me do a different version of a question you asked earlier about where there are uh, books that I didn't want to revisit. There are books whose films I will not watch. Okay. Uh, I will not watch Lord Jim. Okay. Even though it's Peter O'Toole and it's Carol Reed, a uh, great director, a great actor. I love Lord Jim like no other book. And I have no interest in seeing anybody else's vision of that character. I don't Is it because the best version of that film is in your head? Yes. Okay. And because Lord Jim was the book that taught me how to read. Okay. Here, here, if you want to, um, sophomore year, same, again, the same, that same professor. I'm taking his course on um, the 20th century novel. We're reading Lord Jim. It's Conrad's, so of course, I love it. And he's asking us about a particular passage, and nobody has an answer. Okay, he's asking us, and nobody has an answer. And he looks at us. There's about 25, 30 of us sitting there, the best and brightest in New England. And he says, don't you people know how to read? And it was the moment in my life. You talked earlier about, you know, half of your brain being aware of what a teacher is doing. I mean, he really made this explicit, don't you know how to read? And then I know he went on and told us, he said, if this were a love letter or a letter from somebody you would read inside out, you wouldn't let anything pass without analyzing it. And there was a particular passage in Lord Jim, and I remember the passage, and he said, you know, what does this mean, and why do you just gloss over that? So that's one. The other one is End of the Affair. Hmm. Again, great Director um, Neil Jordan, great cast Ray Fiennes and um, Julianne Moore, and there's actually an earlier one from the 1950s with Sarah Miles, but I won't watch either one because uh, End of the Affair is another one of those books. There's, I think it's the voice in there, and of mm-hmm. course, you know, even though Graham Greene writes entirely differently from Conrad. Uh, in fact, Graham Greene stopped reading Conrad because it was ruining his style because hmm. um, he was so drawn to him. But there's something about the distinctiveness of that voice in that book that I don't want. I don't want to see how it looks hmm. from anybody else's point of view. I remember my, my first encounter with Graham Greene. I was when I was studying at the Oregon Extension. There were three, I think, three literature professors from different CCCU schools that mm. they had brought out at, to be on a panel. Marilyn, Marilyn Ashcroft was one of them, mm. and they were asking them, you know, like what are two books that everyone should read and independently each one of them named a grant i mean i think i think two of them said the end of the affair and one said the power and the glory and i remember writing that down then that summer it's like i read a bunch of graham green because i i'm also somebody who like like i'm in my head as i'm listening to you i'm like 
all right, I've read some Conrad, but clearly not enough. I need to, there's some things I need to go. I need to go visit. Well, well talk, talk, talk about a coincidence like that. That we once met somebody in church when I was in graduate school, and uh, I don't remember how we got into the topic of great literature, but. Um, somebody posed to us the question, so what's the most, because we were talking about depressing reading, what's the most depressing novel you've ever read? And we both looked at each other and simultaneously said, Jude the Obscure. <laughs> but I loved Jude the Obscure. <laughs> right. I want to be, I want to be respectful of your time. Sure. Um, I have a couple questions that I ask everyone, so this is kind of the speed round uh, okay. version okay. of the, uh, of the, the podcast here. Uh, first off, and this is a weird question to say, it's a speed round question, but if you could design your ideal school or ideal curriculum, what would that start to look like? Oh wow! I yeah, I suppose I, 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 this is probably derivative. I suppose it would. I suppose it would look a lot like um, the great books mm-hmm. uh, curriculum. I had a friend whose daughter went to um, the St. John's out in Maryland, which is built built on great books. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it would involve a lot, a lot of a lot of reading and uh, and, and a lot of writing. And I guess it would be um, it'd be a lot of in- inquiry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it would be faith-based too. Absolutely. Yeah, All right. definitely. All right, uh, next question. Um, if you could recommend a book, and I'm not asking you to recommend best book you've ever okay. read, your okay. favorite book, but if you could recommend a book that some, if somebody read it, it would help explain you a little bit, what would you recommend? Oh, wow. That they could understand something about you by reading this, this book. A silence. It's just not going to silence. Yeah. Wow! I just I, ju- I just reread that for about the tenth time, fifteenth time. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm loosely in a book club with Chris Moore that I don't ever participate in um, with a bunch of Bethel grads, and they just read that book. And when I heard they were reading it, I got really excited because that's <laughs> that's quite a book. Yeah, it is, and, and it also happens to be a great book. Yes, uh, but yeah, I, I, there, there's there, there's so much of me that resonates with that book. Absolutely, yeah. I would say uh, uh, Endo's um, "Deep River" is a yes. really important book to yep. me as well. Yeah. Um, uh, next, then, or this is, I guess, the last question is um, s- kind of same question, but I'm going to broaden it out to mm-hmm. any any kind of media. So, give me another book. It can be a film. It can be a piece of music. Anything, any other piece of media that you would recommend that would kind of help get at who Barrett Fisher is. Yeah, it's going to be a film, and I got to figure out which one I want to say. Um. So many films to choose from. I'm going to say Out of the Past. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge film noir. It's, it's tough. There's a bunch of films noir I think of, but I'm going to say Out of the Past. I'm a huge film noir fan, um, and so that, I think that Robert Mitchum in, in that in that film. All right, fantastic, <laughs> Barrett. This has been this has been a delight. Uh, this is now the new episode that I'm going to tell people. Oh, if you kind of want to know what this show is about, this is the one I want them to listen to. This has been unbelievably fun. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed myself. Thanks, Sam. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls, aluminum will fill our mouths, the cinema night.